Hi and welcome to our Research in Focus podcast, a podcast exploring the work of La Trobe researchers. I'm Laurie Zine, Director of La Trobe's Transforming Human Society Research Focus Area. Good to have you listening. We're talking with Lauren Gorn, who's obsessed with language, how we use it and what it means. Lauren's currently a David Myers Research Fellow in the Department of Languages and Linguistics and her research focuses on evidentiality and gesture. We're going to get to that soon. Uh, and she's got a, a special interest in Tibeto-Burman languages. Uh, there's also a pretty impressive public dimension to her work. Lauren runs the Generalist Linguistics website called Superlingo, and she hosts the podcast Lingthusiasm, which has been going for a couple of years with the co-presenter on the other side of the world. And she writes the Bilingo column for the big issue about the history of everyday words. So Lauren, welcome. I'm going to start with, well, I don't know if it's an everyday word for everyone, but what does linguistics mean? Uh, thanks, Laurie, for having me on here and letting me talk about, you're right, I do talk about linguistics quite a lot. Um, linguistics is the systematic study of language. So thinking of it as a system, we don't like to use the word rules because that sounds like, you know, if you break them, you're in trouble. But it's a system, just like any other uh, system that we study, whether we study creatures in biology or we study the, the system of, of the elements uh, in chemistry. In linguistics, we're interested in language as a, a set of systems. And the fun thing about language is that it's a set of systems used by people. So it simultaneously has all this order, but also all this wonderful messiness with how humans interact. How did you get interested in this? I um, I was I was definitely one of those always interested. Like I loved English class in in school, and I loved literature. And uh, I didn't have the opportunity to be at a school. Now they have in Victoria, in Australia, this subject called English language, but that wasn't available when I was studying. And so um, I came to university and I actually had a friend who had read some of Kate Burridge's work and she's an amazing Australian linguist. Mm. And my friend said, I'm going to do this subject called linguistics. I was like, okay, that sounds cool. Like I like English and I like languages and I like kind of understanding how these things work. And uh, definitely from day one of my undergraduate, I was I was completely hooked. I was like, this explains so much about how language works. And we're not really exposed to that when we learn about English. And we're told grammar is something to be afraid of rather than something really amazing to explore. Hmm. Um, and that was kind did of you, Did you learn other languages at school? In that very Australian way. Um, where we were kind of subjected to the same Italian lesson for five years in a row um, because I think we really don't explain to students the amazing potential to communicate with people. We kind of take for granted that we live in a very English-dominant society mm. and that we get to interact with major media from other countries in English. And so as a as, at school, I didn't really have a lot of exposure to other languages, but I've I've rectified that afterwards. And when you started studying linguistics at university, did you then feel more motivated to go and learn other languages as well? I think it helped in two ways. Yeah. It helped by giving me a lot of language to talk about language. Mm. So we kind of have this idea that there are nouns and verbs, but we have a very nebulous idea of what they are and we're taught to be afraid of, you know, these complicated rules of grammar. Um, so it made me very relaxed about approaching 
parts of language that people had said were maybe very difficult in other languages. Um, but it also just gave me an appreciation for the importance of at least attempting to communicate with other people in their language and the respect mm. that that affords other languages and the respect that it affords exposing yourself to other cultures. What makes me so interested in linguistics, which I've never studied, by the way, because when I went to uni, I got confused about what it was. No one explained it to me as clearly as you did a few minutes ago. <laughs> and I, I thought it was sort of like a language lab intensive, you know, you'd learn a whole bunch of languages all at once. Right. Which I thought it'd do my head in, and it probably would have. But that wasn't what it was on offer at all. But I've since become really interested in it because I, I had this hunch, I don't know, 12 years ago, that the whole question of Australian identity is wrapped up in our accent. I Most it, definitely. And I made a TV program about it without actually knowing enough about linguistics to sustain the story. So <laughs> I met a lot of people who studied this, and I was fascinated by, I suppose, this sort of unconsciousness about what we're really communicating when we use words without really thinking about what they mean. And things like the high-rising terminal where you go up at the end of the sentence and those kind of things that um, tell us so much if we actually have the keys to understanding them. Yeah, and I think a lot of people come at these things with a bit of um, fear or a lot of judgment and not really a full understanding of what they are. So that yeah. high rising at the end of a sentence actually is really handy because it tells you that I'm continuing to talk. Yeah. Um, and even though often a lot of times it's dismissed as kind of valley girl or the domain of young women, uh, you, you definitely see a lot of middle-aged men who are very proficient wielders of that high rising terminal. And it's it is considered a form of inclusion. Definitely. If yeah, yeah. I choose to kind of make my accent sound more like yours um, or if I, you know, choose to sound less Australian, that's that's signalling something to you that may not even be conscious on my behalf. No. Um, I grew up at a time when um, mothers had telephone voices. So I always remember with my mum, who, who's an incredibly, bless her at 84, a very down-to-earth person, but when she would pick up the phone when, when I was seven years old, and you know, hello, 817338, <laughs> you know, that sort of voice would come out. We and don't so, talk on the telephone enough anymore. Yeah, that's right. We don't talk on the telephone enough. So from, from actually talking about accent and, and high-rising terminals, mm -hmm. I'm going to try something a bit more tricky now because your specialty is gesture. That's true. So never. what is what is gesture in terms of linguistics? Oh, it never plays very well on a podcast, does no, it? No, I was thinking. That's okay. We'll do some explaining. So uh -huh. I am specifically interested <laughs> in the gestures that we use when we talk. Yeah. And I think it's important to say straight up that we we don't know of a language and we don't know of a culture that has an absence of gesture during conversation because it seems to be something that is deeply intertwined with language in our cognitive system. So from a very young age, without being taught or encouraged, um, young children will gesture. We know people who are blind from birth who've never seen anyone else gesture will still gesture, often very similar ways to people who are sighted. Mm. So there's something wonderfully universal in terms of the human capacity for language that includes gesture but there's also these really wonderful cultural variations in terms of um, the kinds of gestures that people use uh, and, and the kinds of uh, 
implications that those gestures have in conversation. Hmm. And how do you research that and come to conclusions about the meaning of gesture? We are so lucky to live in an era of video and particularly digital video because it means when I'm working in Nepal, which is where I do a lot of my work, um, I can take a very small video camera and a great many SD cards and we can record people, you know, telling stories and singing songs and chatting. And that allows us to then look at a very fine grained level at exactly what gestures people are using when they talk. Before the middle of the 20th century, a lot of the work on gesture was really quite, uh, this is what I think happens when people talk, because it all happens very quickly. Um, whereas the kind of scientific study of gesture, and I think this is why it's lagged behind our understanding of other parts of language is just that we haven't had the technology to really pin down what's happening until recently. Sounds fascinating. Do people in Nepal use gesture very differently to Australians? Uh, Not in terms of... It's a leading question, by the way. It's a very leading question. Because if we... we, could, Could gesture become a supplement for lack of oral comprehensibility? There are features of gesture that make it wonderfully useful when you don't share a language because there's something very immediate about it. So I can point at something and we can generally pretty safely agree on what I'm pointing at. Yeah. Um, or I could kind of mime something, but it has incredibly limited functionality in the absence of, of spoken language. So gesture is not going to become some convenient universal language for us as soon as our hand shapes become complicated enough to say the things we really want to say, you have a fully-fledged sign language with its own grammar yeah. um, and many of the features of spoken language. And, in fact, sign languages have gesture with them. Uh, even sign languages include some component of gesture. So mm. um, gesture has its immediate uses, but there are also features that mean that it's not in itself going to be a universal communication strategy. Mm. Um, What's really interesting is some of the similarities in terms of, so one gesture I've researched in detail uh, is one that you, you kind of put your palms flat down, facing downwards, and then you rotate them upwards and you keep your index finger and your thumb extended and your other fingers bunched up. Do I do this, by the way? Or does everyone do this? Well, this is a very specific gesture in Nepal. Oh, okay. Where especially this hand shape with the kind of, you know, you're making a kind of gun shape with your thumb and, and index finger and rotating your mean? palm upwards. And it's used to mean something like, especially in the absence of speech, and if you do a little shrug as well, means a kind of, what are you going to do about it? So that's a bit similar. To so it's not entirely yeah. unusual to us. Similar to what we do in Australia, perhaps. Yeah. Very similar to a shrug. Mm. Um, And what's quite interesting is this hand shape and this movement is found all over India and Nepal. Um, It's grammaticalized into Pakistani sign language and into Indian sign language. So it has a really broad aerial function. Mm. And it's not very dissimilar to something that we do, but it's been completely independently kind of grammaticalized, if you want to use, like it's been put into the grammar in some ways in that when people use it with speech, it indicates a question. So I might use it without speech to mean, you know, what are you going to do about it? You missed your boss. Mm. Uh, But I can use it to say, you know, what do you want to eat? And I can use this hand shape 
and that strengthens the fact that it's a question. Amazing. Do we also have, and I know this is not your specialty area, but is there also a set of signs and gestures we use with dogs? Because there's so much made of the fact that we can understand each other with very limited number of actual words. And I suppose for, you know, for training and for, for assistance dogs, there must be something happening in gesture that universalizes the, the way that gesture works between the two species. So dogs are very good at reading our gestures. Mm. Um, they're very good at understanding our verbal commands too. And that's part of the bargain that we struck with them after... Genetic pact. Thousands yeah. of years of, of co, co-living. Um, in fact, dogs, if you point at something... A dog will be able to follow your finger, especially if you've hidden a treat under something. Um, they'll learn this trick very quickly. They'll follow your finger and know exactly what you're pointing at, yeah. which I try and stress to my students when I teach a gesture class is actually a really complicated cognitive trick to know that you're not meant to just look at my finger. You're meant to keep following this imaginary line that comes out of it. Um, dogs are really good at that. Cats are really bad at it. <laughs> I don't fully understand if it's because cats are cognitively incapable or just refuse. You know, I think that there, could, there could be potential ideas either way there, depending on your opinion of cats. Um, but dogs can follow a point. Yeah. Um, and they can understand signs in lieu of spoken commands. Uh, but that's just because... Uh, they've, they've trained to really pay attention to what we want from them. And it's eye contact too, isn't it? They're also very sensitive to human body language. Yeah. Um, and that's part of their kind of human dog packed, uh, pack kind of mentality. And their sort of social social skills that I guess we're very fond of. You have a dog as a companion talking about endlessly without any scientific basis. Um, Lauren, I wanted to ask you also about the fact that you've been able in your career as uh, a linguistics researcher to uh, to convey that enthusiasm across a range of platforms. Tell us about your, your podcast, which I, by the way, really enjoy listening to. And I sometimes have to remind myself that your co-presenter is in Canada <laughs> and you're doing it from Australia. How did this come about and how did you actually, uh, how did you actually develop the kind of rapport you've got with your co-presenter to be able to do a program like that. So Lingthusiasm is a podcast that is enthusiastic about linguistics um, and we're pretty unashamedly enthusiastic. Um, I think it's important for people to know that that there are subjects that you you can care deeply and nerdily about a subject in a really positive and affirming way. Um, And for me, it's really an extension of I couldn't imagine doing academic work entirely in an academic bubble. Um, That's not... I don't have a lot of... I have no family in academia. I have no interest in kind of living the life of the mind completely devoid of the larger social context. So for me, it's an imperative of sharing the things that I love and find engaging about topics that I care about. Um, My co-host Gretchen McCulloch is a full-time pop linguist it's her she's a full-time uh pop writer she writes for um generalist publications she has her own blog as well and um it's really great being able to work with her on this as you say she lives in canada 
Uh, we function thanks to the magic of the internet. There you go. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, we both record locally and then our producer makes podcast magic happen. But uh, who's the audience for this? The audience for, I think there is a really untapped audience for people who want to know more about stuff as a very broad category of entertainment. Hmm. We, um, you know, we have a one of the world's, we have the, this global population that has never been more educated and more interested in learning about the world that they live in. And we have this wonderful way of sharing media thanks to the internet. So instead of once upon a time, you would have had to have pitched this to a broadcast radio station. You'd have had to have been in the same place. Um, you would have been talking to a geographically contained audience, whereas we have the wonderful luxury of of kind of putting the show out there and it connects with people who studied linguistics and miss it, people who never got the opportunity like yourself. Um, we really enjoy when professors include it in their, you know, undergraduate extended reading options. Great. Um, that's always really lovely to hear from people about. So... There really is a, a broad audience out there for and a real thirst. Do they for get knowledge. in touch with you? Yeah, sometimes they do. <laughs> Your blog, as well, I suppose, uh, is an, is a kind of variation on the theme of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the blog has been going for quite a while, so the podcast is about two years old, and I've had the blog since two thousand and ten or eleven. Mm. And that's just it was just a wonderful way to practice different styles of writing for different audiences. And, you know, synthesizing something I've written as a research article into 400 words that maybe my mum will engage with. Well, uh, here comes my next question, which really is, nice does thing. doing this kind of work with your blog and your podcast actually give you ideas for the sort of research that you like to undertake? Because sometimes it seems, you know, I've had this experience too, talking about uh, talking about in kind of just conversations with friends or Mm-hmm. trying to do a spot on radio, sometimes I get ideas from that about, oh, my goodness, I don't know if anyone's even looked at this. Yeah, it definitely exposes me to thinking about a broader range of topics than if I was just always writing about my little corner of the world. Mm. So it kind of allows me a really selfish opportunity to kind of dabble in lots of other areas. Um, and so some of the short-form blog writing that I've done about um, – emerging communicative practices like emoji has subsequently gone into writing a larger article about that. So it definitely helps inform my academic writing, but it also keeps my academic writing from becoming too stuffy. So there are benefits both ways. Um, Final question, Lauren. You've been part of a a project that's examined um, the documentation progress around endangered languages. Mm -hmm. How do you define endangered when it comes to language? The vast majority of the world's languages are in a state of greater or lesser endangerment in terms of the number of active speakers. So um, depending on the given linguist and the given day, you'll hear there are between six and 7,000 languages in the world. And as has been the case, you know, I think it's important to stress that for the vast majority of human history, um, most languages have a really small number of speakers. So the Shuba language that I do a lot of work with in Nepal has around one and a half thousand speakers. And traditionally that has been enough to sustain a population. Um, we also know that 
bilingualism or multilingualism is really the norm around the world. We get very caught up in Australia in this kind of monolingual mindset that we have of this real assumption that normal people speak one language and speaking other languages is some weird additive process. But for the majority of humans, for the majority of history, they've been speakers of two or three or four languages, sometimes even more, to navigate their daily lives. And so what you're seeing with the kind of increasing pressure of globally dominant languages like English or regionally dominant languages like Nepali and Nepal, because that's the language that everyone is educated in, you're seeing pressure on these smaller languages. And it's definitely not the case that we should blame. Sometimes there's a sense of blame of people giving up their language um, because they often make these choices in very economically complicated and socially complicated situations. And, you know, that was the case for my family. My grandmother came over as a, a refugee after the Second World War and was told to not speak Polish to her children because it would confuse them. That was the received wisdom of the day. And so my mother has grown up never actually being able to speak her own mother's native language. They've never had a conversation uh, in a language that they share that's not English. Mm. And um, so we're looking at potentially losing about 80% of the world's linguistic diversity in the coming century. That correlates pretty strongly with loss of other forms of diversity as well. And I think there's, you know, there's a, a multitude of individual tragedies, like an untold number of individual sadnesses there. There's also, you know, if you want to be very prosaic or kind of researcher-brained about it, there's also something really sad that we're kind of losing every single language that we have is like a natural experiment in what the human brain is capable of doing. And so... One of my, one of my colleague explain, colleagues explained it. This, this, you know, every language is like its own petri dish of human cognitive capability, mm. and so it's kind of it's also sad to be to lose this kind of diversity as we're documenting it. Is it true that people who can speak more than one language have their brains rewired in a slightly <laughs> different way? Uh, sure, to some extent. Asking yeah. to settle a, 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 an argument at home, by the way. Um, There's certainly an amount of neurological reordering that goes on with every new language acquired. Um, Exactly what kind of direct benefit that has uh, is kind of complicated in the literature, but I think just the benefit of being able to talk to other people in a different language and experience the the world through someone else's language is an inherent benefit that we often downplay. All right, Lauren, I'm going to go home and learn Croatian. Fabulous. One of the more difficult languages I've attempted in my life unsuccessfully. Well, I mean, you could learn some linguistics first and give yourself the meta-language to approach it. So does that mean like a sort of Slavic base code of... No, we'll just teach you about how cool the case system is and then you'll enjoy learning it. Great, because the grammar is what's killing me, I have to say. Oh, it's just another adventure in language, Laurie. All right, I'm in. Talk to you after the show. Lauren Gordon, it's been great talking to you about your work. I've learned a great deal that I didn't know before, which is terrific. And it's great having you on our little program, Research in Focus, which is a La Trobe University podcast, uh, which we happen to co-produce. It's been uh, uh, fun being on the side of the interview desk. It's been huge fun. Research in Focus is a La Trobe University podcast produced by Laurie Zion and Lauren Gorn. Support for this podcast comes from La Trobe University's Transforming Human Societies Research Focus Area. 
This podcast is edited by Max Robbins and Margaret Purdom and hosted by Upstart. Our music is Bright Future by Silent Partner. Thank you.